Hello, welcome to the Proskauer Brief, Hot Topics on Employee Benefits Law. I'm Rob Perjanski, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Paul Hamburger. Today, we're going to discuss quadros and 10 easy steps. Paul, many of our clients and plan administrators have spent a significant amount of time on quadros. My understanding is you're going to give us some steps to make it a little bit easier for them to handle those things. Right. I think plan administrators tend to find quadros to be a lot more complicated than at the end of the day they really end up being. So what we want to do is we want to run through some of the 10 basic steps for how to manage qualified domestic relations orders, also known as quadros. Number one, in the world of domestic relations orders, there are only two kinds, qualified or not qualified. Qualified and not qualified. Can you walk us through where you're headed with that? Basically, what I've seen often plan administrators will say that a certain provision of a quadro is okay, but this other provision is not okay. That's a bad approach because what ends up happening is you end up with an approved order and a bad provision. The other aspect is often divorce attorneys will submit an order with boilerplate language. Simply because it has boilerplate language saying it's qualified doesn't make it so. So does that mean we shouldn't tell people what's wrong with their quadros when we respond back to them? We should absolutely tell them what's wrong. There is a school of thought that says we shouldn't try to prefer one party over the other, but that's different than actually telling people what is wrong with their orders and how to repair them. So you would typically say this is what's wrong and here's how you can fix it? Correct. So two types of orders, stream of payment and separate interest. How do we understand the difference between the two? It's helpful as an analytical tool to understand that there are only two types of qualified orders. The reason is if I know it's a stream of payments, certain things flow from it. Or perhaps my facts are such that the only type of order that is permissible is a stream of payments. Separate interest is another type of order and that dictates a certain outcome. So what's the difference? A separate interest order is an order that says what's yours is yours and mine is mine. I'm going to split up this benefit through some marital fraction or some other kind of percentage basis. A stream of payments order, the hallmark language is if, as, and when something is payable to the participant, pay a portion of it to the alternate payee. A great analogy to think about is a separate interest is like splitting up a six-pack of beer where you take three bottles, I take three bottles, and yours are yours and mine is mine. Whereas a stream of payments is a keg where there's one spigot and we're just going to add another spigot and when you drink, I get to drink, etc., etc. So it's just an analytical way of looking at these orders. Okay. Uh, brings me back to college, Paul. Now let's go into the, really the more practical you know, items three through ten are really, okay, what do I need to ask myself as an administrator? So the first is which plan must pay? Tell us what you mean by that. Often plan administrators assume that they know which plan is supposed to pay. So if you are a plan administrator and there are multiple plans within a control group, there might be a retirement plan, a 401k plan, might be a couple of retirement plans, and an order comes in and it says pay under the Exco retirement plan, Exco being the name of the company, the plan administrator often will just assume which plan that means. And that's a big mistake because you don't want the wrong plan paying. You want to make sure that the order is directed to the proper plan. What if they get a, uh, one word in the name wrong? Does that mean we reject the quadro? Do we accept it? How, how do we deal with that? 
Normally, we can accept it if it's clear from the words that are in the order which plan we're talking about. So it's sort of a rule of reason. So to whom it must pay? Um, what kind of complications do you get in that sort of analysis? The basic easy answer here is that if an order is paying a former spouse, it's easy. We know who to pay. It has to identify the name of the former spouse. Same thing with children. Uh, sometimes an order will come in and it will want to pay child support uh, for specific children. Where it gets a little tricky is sometimes an order will want to pay a third party, a child support service or some other entity on behalf of children or perhaps even former spouses. That's where it gets a little trickier and you've got to be careful to make sure that you know A, who those entities are and B, whether they really are acting for the interest of the designated individuals. Can you ever write a check to the child support agency? Does it have to be a, or, or let's say I get this sometimes, to the lawyer? Can you write a check to them or does it have to be a check to the actual alternate payee? It really has to be paid to the alternate payee and it is not enough to just say to the lawyer as an example. Here's a check, make sure you give the alternate payee his or her share of that uh, after you've taken your fee uh, out of that check, which is typically why it goes that way. No, you don't want to do that. Okay, Paul, so one of the areas that I find most difficult when I'm looking at quadros is the how much to pay. How can you make that step easy for us? Often some of the challenges in determining how much to pay arise in defined contribution plans. And the reason is the parties will want to take an account balance as of several years ago and then bring it forward with the actual earnings and losses from the date, perhaps the date of divorce, which may have occurred a few years earlier, forward to today when the order is being entered. And it can get very complicated, particularly when plans simply don't have the records to go back and recalculate how much was attributable to which party. The easier thing to do, particularly in a defined contribution plan, is simply to say, how much money do you want? What percentage of the current account balance do you want? And let the parties determine how much is an appropriate marital share as they go ahead and divide up the, the party's uh, assets. In a defined benefit plan, one of the more complicated features of determining how much to pay involves the marital fraction, and often, what happens is you're taking a percentage of a certain benefit, the benefit then being determined based on the period of the marriage as compared to the period of employment. And that can be one that is a very tricky analysis to pay. Generally, plan administrators should push that back to the parties to make sure that it is clear and that the plan administrator will be able to determine how much to pay without any argument later on down the road. So now we've got the amount. Let's talk about when payments start. Um, Paul, we always hear questions about, can I pay before earliest retirement age in the plan? Then the question is, what's earliest retirement age and what can we pay before then and when? Can you walk us through how we deal with that? One of the more confusing definitional terms in the area of quadros deals with earliest retirement age. And the reason is it's the earlier of two dates, one of which is the later of two other dates. So it becomes very complicated to figure this out. What we like to do, particularly in defined contribution plans, but even in defined benefit plans, is have the plan written in a way that says that for alternate payees, we will pay even before earliest retirement age. If the plan says it, you can do it. The advantage to that is you can begin payments immediately. 
Ideally, you could even pay lump sums, even in defined benefit plans where the plan doesn't otherwise have a lump sum feature. You could add one just for alternate payees in order to pay the benefit, have it be paid under the order, and then move on and not have that order hanging out there forever. All right, so we've, we've got three more steps. When payments stop, what happens when people die, the participant or the alternate payee. Often you see a lot of language in quadros on these issues. I'm guessing you have a way to make that much simpler than it actually looks. Generally, it is a lot simpler than people make it out to be. Often it's overlooked, particularly the question arises, what happens when the alternate payee dies? Does the money go back to the participant or does the money go to a beneficiary of the alternate payee? And that can be very confusing. The one thing that probably ends up being the most confusing is in a separate interest environment where I've said, here's how much goes to the participant, here's how much goes to the alternate payee. They will then name the alternate payee as a surviving spouse. The reason they do that is they're worried that if the participant predeceases the alternate payee, that the alternate payee's interest will disappear, will go up in smoke. And all you really need to do is say that the alternate payee can continue to receive the alternate payee's interest even in the event of the death of the participant. If you name the alternate payee as a surviving spouse, that will have implications down the road if the participant wants to elect any form of benefit for the benefit of the participant and some other beneficiary, such as a subsequent spouse. That can tend to be very problematic. It's much easier to simply ask the question, what will happen when the participant dies? What will happen when the alternate payee dies? And explain what it is that you would like to happen, and then let the plan administrator tell you whether that situation is permissible or not under the terms of the plan. All right, so let's talk a little bit about procedures. You mentioned that plans need to establish procedures. Can you tell us what you have in mind in that regard? Sure. I think the statute contemplates that there will be quadro procedures that will be made available to participants and beneficiaries, and those quadro procedures can become very, very important. What the processes are, what steps are going to be followed, and what items need to be covered in the quadro are things like hold periods, so that if I receive a prospective order, it has not been entered by a court, or I receive a letter from the parties saying we are seeking an order, I want to have an established procedure in my plan that says we will hold the participant's benefit for a certain period of time. Typically, I'll see anywhere from 60 to 90 days, during which I will not let the participant have access to the participant's funds so that I don't end up with an order ordering me to pay those funds to an alternate payee. This can tend to put a little bit more focus or pressure on the parties to resolve the issue and come up with the order. Is there advantage to doing that besides just the idea that it will put some pressure on the two parties? Is there an advantage to the plan administrator for having something like that? Yeah, the big advantage is to avoid double payment because orders can actually come in retroactively to particular dates and there are circumstances where you could end up having an order that literally orders you to pay out money that you then let the participant have access to. And once the parties have put you on notice, that can be a risky proposition. The last point on procedures is to deal with allocation of funds. For example, plans might have after-tax money. And if you have an order that simply says divide the account, how are you supposed to divide up the share of after-tax money? How are you supposed to liquidate investments or allocate investments? 
when orders come in and they simply say split the account. If you have a procedure, then the parties can be on notice that unless the order says otherwise, we're going to allocate the after-tax money on a pro-rata basis, or we're going to liquidate the investments on a pro-rata basis, etc. So procedures can actually help you manage that process. Well, thanks very much, Paul, for making a little bit of a difficult issue a little bit easier today. Thank you for joining us on the Proskauer Benefits Brief today. Stay tuned for more insights on the latest hot topics in employee benefits law, and be sure to follow us on iTunes.